Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, Steve, how are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm uh, getting a little bit more of my better paying work. You know, I have a whole basket full of self-employment uh, hustles. And the one that tends to pay me the best is uh, software training, uh, Adobe software training for the most part. And uh, I that's been slim pickings for the last little bit here. But suddenly I have it coming in with uh, no effort on my part. So uh, I'm looking forward to being able to contribute to the household financial bottom line. So uh, that's good. Yeah. How about yourself? Uh, I'm having good uh, time. I'm continuing to do my job. But guess what I did for this last week? I guess what you did. Um, I'm going to guess that you breathed and ate. I breathed and ate. Not only <laughs> that, but I... So we are celebrating... Uh, I don't think we've discussed this. We're celebrating our first year of this podcast. Um, oh. This podcast first dropped about a year ago, and I decided to celebrate by I listened to our podcast, which is to say, since we last recorded, I listened to all 30 hours of this podcast, and I just really enjoyed myself. I found myself really looking forward to, you know, I've been, it's been lovely weather here. I've been taking walks, and I've been looking forward to just listening to our podcast. And I think we have done a tremendous job at this podcast. I think we've made 30 excellent hours of radio. And it was just a tremendous amount of fun to go back and listen to them. And it was fascinating to hear all the ways the Marvel Universe has sort of changed. We've been doing this podcast for a year. We've covered from November 1961 to March 1964. And it's been fascinating listening to the ways the Marvel Universe has changed and all the epic story that's already happened so far. It's almost like that was the whole point of us doing this in the first place. I know. It's been great. But yes, so I've greatly enjoyed that. I know you actually mentioned to me at one point, like about a week ago, that you were in the middle of doing that. And I was like, you know what? That does sound like a good idea. And so I have been doing the same. I'm not all the way through them yet. But um, I, too, have been like, this is better than I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, OK, we're we're not we're not so bad at this. I wish I could get 10 minutes out of every episode. If I would love to go back and re-edit every single episode we've done and cut 10 minutes out of every one, but and we're going to have to start being stricter going forward. So tonight, yes. we're going to be setting strict five-minute limits on the non-Lee Kirby books, and we should you know, try to keep the Lee Kirby books brisk, too, because sure. presumably tonight's going to get broken up into two episodes. We've got a ton of books that came out in March 1964. There's some good books tonight. We should go ahead and jump in. Yeah. So Amazing Spider-Man number 10, it says on the cover, never has anyone fought such merciless foes as the Enforcers. So we have this new guy. Now, you were saying on our Facebook feed that like, oh, a couple years later, they'll do the Crime Master. Well, you were a little bit off because here he is in the very next issue. No, and, this isn't uh, the Crime Master. This isn't the Crime Master. This is Big Man. Is that? Oh, is that different from the Crime Master? Yeah. Crime Master is the guy who has the sort of Rorschach looking face. Oh, right. This is the guy who has more of the Mr. A looking face. Yes. Okay. I had I was thinking like, oh, here we have the Crime Master already. But you're right. This is the big man. This is different. We need to talk about the fact that Kirby drew Spider-Man on the cover. Well, yes. So it certainly seems as if 
The Enforcers are drawn by Ditko, and Spider-Man certainly looks like he was drawn by Kirby. Yes. My understanding on this is that Ditko had drawn this cover, and he had uh, Spider-Man in a position where you were basically just seeing his back. Stan Lee thought that that was not good for the cover of an issue, so he had Jack go and redraw the Spider-Man figure. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, because this is a very robust Spider-Man, much more robust than Steve usually draws him. So that makes total sense that Jack redrew him. But but I figured I wasn't I didn't want to say it was a Jack cover because the enforcers are so clearly Dicko. Yes. Okay. So then we come into the issue. So this issue is a big step forward for Spider-Man in that it is showing for the first time a type of storyline that will occur a lot in Spider-Man, which is to say a storyline in which the bad guy is wearing a mask and there are several suspects that Spider-Man is investigating to figure out who the bad guy is who's wearing the mask. This will recur again very much with, I guess it will recur with Crime Master. And then mm-hmm. it will recur with the Green Goblin, very much so. And then as different people become the Green Goblin over the years, it'll happen over and over again. It's like, okay, who is the Green Goblin now? This will happen most, it'll happen with the Rose. This will happen most notably with the Hobgoblin, where the Hobgoblin is what becomes a sort of epic, like 100 issue storyline, if you include all of the Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man issues. And that that storyline is sort of, I was going to say the most infamous Spider-Man storyline. It's not even close (laughs) to being the most infamous Spider-Man storyline. That would be, there was, there was. The Clone Saga, there was Maximum Carnage, there was One More Day. Um, there were all sorts of infamous Spider-Man storylines over the years. There was a six-arm storyline that I know bugs a lot of people. Oh, there was the... Uh, I haven't even gotten into the storyline where it turns out Green Goblin and Gwen Stacy had kids who come, uh, who show up. <laughs> Gross. The Hobgoblin is one of the most infamous Spider-Man storylines because it drags on forever and it ends in an extremely unsatisfying way. And we got a little preview of that in this issue in that we get a mystery (laughs) that is a lot of fun and ends in a fairly unsatisfactory way. So in this issue, we begin with a crook is getting away from the police, climbs out on a flagpole. Spider-Man's like, what is he up to? And then a helicopter in the clouds helps the crook escape. And Spider-Man's like, whoa, that was weird. Well, it turns out that this is ordered by the big man. So the big man wears this very distinctive white face mask that just looks like a face, but it's hard to, but presumably is immobile and he's talking behind it, but he's pretty cool looking villain. And he's got three enforcers, a big strong guy named Ox, a little tiny guy who is an expert at judo black belt. His name is Fancy Dan and a cowboy wearing a cowboy hat with a lasso who lassos people. And his name is Montana. And they are awesome. I have always loved the enforcers. They are wonderful right away. We see the big man is getting ready to take over the rackets with the enforcers. Meanwhile, last week we had Betty coming to the hospital to visit Aunt May in the hospital. Now we have Liz and Flash, which is a little weird. So, so it makes it clear that Liz Liz had heard about heard about Aunt May and wanted to come and visit her. And Flash makes it very clear that this was not his idea and that Liz dragged him along. Oh, yeah, it was Liz's idea, Sonny. She dragged me along for company. But then they're just there to make Peter Parker feel bad because then Peter Parker finds out his aunt needs a transfusion. He's like, I can't give her a transfusion. I have radioactive blood. That's what he thinks. But then they're like, why would you give your aunt a transfusion? So then he does. And I think this will come up years later that she is... Well, not just years later. Oh, that's right. This is just in the Ditko yeah, issues. That's in the, the ones where uh, we have another one of those mysterious villains who turns out to be a whole separate villain. <laughs> yes, the master planner. Uh, 
Yes. There you go. And in that storyline, it will turn out that she is sick because he gave her radioactive blood. But he goes and gives it to her. She then takes a vacation in Florida for a week with some friends. But meanwhile, the big man is taking over the rackets. <laughs> There's just in keeping with the idea of cramming in so much story into these things that one panel of these books would be six issues later, we see just one panel in which he uses three helicopters to steal a mail car from a railroad. And it's like, okay, that could have been a whole story. But so then everybody knows this is Big Man's forcers. Spider-Man's trying to figure out who they are. The cops are trying to figure out who they are. Of course, J.J. Jameson assumes that it is Spider-Man. He then brings in his columnist, Foswell, to write a column saying that Spider-Man is the enforcer. Now, he is smart enough to go like, uh, didn't you just claim that Electro was Spider-Man? Uh, aren't you going to get in trouble this time? And he's like, I don't care what you say. So Foswell does not have his distinctive mustache yet, which he will have later, but he's got his distinctive bow tie. Meanwhile, we then see, so we've already established that Betty has some secrets in her past that she has not told us about. Well, it turns out that one of her secrets is that she's been borrowing from the mob because she is leaving work, she gets hassled by Ox, Fancy Dan, and Montana about a debt that she owes the mob. And then she's like, oh, I'm trying to pay you. I've been paying the interest. And Pete comes out and is protecting her. And she doesn't want to talk about this and runs away. Of course, he thinks, I must have been wrong about her. She can't care for me if she won't confide in me, which is a dickish <laughs> way to respond. Well, also seeing as how he certainly has a secret that he's not confiding in her about. Exactly. <laughs> so then he... Changes to Spider-Man, finds the person who pointed out Betty to the enforcers, uh, <laughs> threatens him. At first he won't talk, so then Spider-Man goes ahead and creates a giant spider out of wood uh, and webbing to threaten the guy. The guy then is willing to talk, tells Spider-Man where to go to find the enforcers and the big man. Spider-Man goes and has a wonderful deco fight with, the, with all three enforcers. But then Spider-Man is getting weak in the fight, and he realizes it's because he gave blood, and he's feeling too weak to continue the fight, so he realizes the big man is left, slips away, but then he notices somebody leaving. He notices that J. Jonah Jameson is leaving the area, and he starts to suspect that J. Jonah Jameson is the big man. Meanwhile, he tries to call Betty. Betty doesn't pick up the phone. Betty thinks, there's only one thing to do. I've got to leave, never see him again. Sure enough, Pete shows up the next day, and Betty seemingly has quit. Jameson is complaining he has to find a new secretary. Pete stops off with Foswell and says, oh, you know, boy, he's got you writing about how Spider-Man and the big man are the same guy, and Foswell is sort of browbeaten, and he says, I'd say that Peter Rabbit was the big man if he told me to. You don't work on this paper and argue with old prune face. So then Spider-Man that's, goes, a, that's a lovely panel right there. Just the oh, yeah. composition of that panel is really great. And this is, you know, Ditko sort of at his peak, uh, you know, at his peak as far as I'm concerned, uh, with the, the look on Peter's face and the look on Foswell's face. So then, of course, Pete goes home and there's light coming in through Venetian blinds, giving him a noir situation at home. He comes up with a clever plan. He, we then see him at school with a very smug look on his face. And he has come up with a clever plan to tell everybody at Forest Hills High School that he knows who the big man is. And then he knows that the word will leak out from Forest Hills High School all the way back to the big man, who is presumably in Manhattan. And sure enough, it does. There is a uh, a sort of underworld figure who has heard the heard the latest rumors at Forest Hills High School that Peter Parker knows who the big man is. And he says, so that kid Parker knows who the big man is, huh? The enforcers ought to, play, ought to pay plenty for that tip. Montana goes and tells the big man, and the big man's like, oh, I know who Peter Parker is. And they're like, oh, you know? You mean you know him, boss? Says, of course I know him. Don't stand there asking fool questions. Go get him. Sure enough, Peter Parker is kidnapped by the enforcers. 
he is taken back instead of just you know dumping him in the river killing him which is you would think what they would do they put him in a jail cell i don't know what their what their long-term plan is here but they put peter parker in a jail cell he becomes spider-man escapes from the jail cell and then gets in an epic fight with every hoodlum in the city all at once and then the enforcers again montana with his lasso and uh ox throwing tires at him and fancy dan flipping him with judo flips of course the big man greasing up the floor trying to uh cause him to fall over that way he realizes he's got to throw his spider projector thing out the window to shine on a nearby building to get the cops come and we get a gorgeous panel on the big on the bottom of page 18 of police cars screaming across town dicko could have easily done crime comics it, to a certain extent, he makes this into a crime comic, and it is wonderful. Spider-Man tries to catch up with the big man. The big man gets away. Spider-Man, at this point, is convinced that J. Jonah Jameson is the big man, so he goes to confront J. Jonah Jameson, but he hangs out outside the window for a second first, savoring the moment. Look how nervous he is. I knew I was right. He's worried sick about his crime ring being broken up. But then he goes and hangs back, and he sees Foswell come in to talk to JJJ, since I've got the proofs of that column. Then the police come in and says, J. Right. Jonah Jameson is telling Foswell, like, haven't you heard the bulletins? The enforcers have been captured, and the crime syndicate is broken up. Only the big man has escaped, and the police are after to find him before too long. And then the police come in the door, and they go, we've found him already, Jameson. And he goes, huh? And Spider-Man's saying, oh, this is good. They're about to arrest Jameson. But no, they arrest Foswell. And so this is the first of many unsatisfactory big villain reveals in Spider-Man history, of which we will have many. It really doesn't make any sense at all that Foswell is the big man other than he has been a character in this book and therefore is, at least they're revealing it's unlike, say, with Electro, it's a character we've met before and, oh, he's the person I least suspected. But of course we least suspected him because it doesn't really make any sense for him to be the character. But they point out he wore elevated shoes and an oversized suit and they drag him away. Then meanwhile, we have, as promised on the cover, J. Jonah Jameson just gives a little speech to himself, sort of Shakespearean-style speech to himself about why he dislikes Spider-Man. And he says, all my life, I've only been interested in one thing, making money, and yet Spider-Man risks his life day after day with no thought of reward. If a man like him is good, is a hero, then what am I? I can never respect myself while he lives. So then Spider-Man goes home, realizes he hasn't heard from Betty, misses her very much. We then cut to Betty, who misses Peter very much, but can't bear to call him. And that is the end of the issue. Of course, the speech of J. Jonah Jameson feels very Brandian. It's always very tempting. The speech is presumably written by Stan Lee, and Dicko just drew three panels of J. Jonah Jameson making a speech to himself, but this feels very much like it's right out of the fountainhead. This idea of, you know, he creates and I merely criticize, and so therefore I'm jealous of his ability to be a paragon of good in the world when I am merely a leech on society. Well, we had that thing earlier where you were talking about some kind of interview with Ditko where he referred to a page panel script. Right. I think that was the term that you used. And, you know, sometimes these artists would, you know, write pretty extensive explanations of what is going on in the panel or what they think the character is saying. And, you know, I'm guessing just because, you know, as you said, this seems like a very Ayn Rand inflected thing that Ditko had a relatively extensive notes that yeah. Lee followed. Yeah, no, it it so it feels like this came right from Dicko, uh, even the dialogue here. But so this is, I think it's a lot of fun to get a preview of the sort of story that Spider-Man will get so much juice out of going forward. Stories in which the villain wears a mask and 
Spider-Man is trying to figure out who it is and is collecting clues. And there is a big shocking reveal that it's a member of the cast who we did not suspect. However, this is also predicting how it will go in that very frequently the reveals will be disappointing. Okay, so about this issue, uh, I don't like the Enforcers as much as you do. I find them kind of silly. They're not my thing. Oh, yeah. So uh, the big uh, artificial spider that he uses to scare that guy, that's once again just one of those things where it's like, dude, how how much web fluid do you have in that thing? <laughs> like, this is enormous. And yes, they do show a little bit of wood in the background. But even so, they said it's minutes later. He then has built this whole thing with pieces of wood knocked together and uh, and way too much webbing. <laughs> it's just uh, a little odd. He's, uh, he's oh, blowing oh, through the webbing. Blowing through his, uh, so on his supply. Page, on page 11, panel 2, I absolutely love that panel, and it feels very modern to me. And I think the reason it feels very modern to me is because that kind of effect for Spider-Man in the dark is going to be used by artists going forward through the years. And uh, so that that's just a really fantastic looking thing. I really do like the art that Ditko does in this issue. I think he's great with Peter. I think he, for the most part, there's a, one or two panels where it's a little bit weird but uh i love the different facial expressions on the minor characters they just have tons of character to them i love that fight scene in the uh in the parking garage uh, oh and did you notice that on the bottom of page 15 fancy dan turns himself into donkey kong to uh spider-man's <laughs> mario <laughs> very much so <laughs> so uh, that is that wait okay that is fancy dan yes he's rolling no it's not fancy dan it's the big man himself montana oh no it's the big man himself says "Uh oh the big man's trying to slow me down by rolling oil drums down the ramp at me and he says i stopped him for you you clumsy oops now get him so yes okay he is uh in my copy they 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 colored his face in that uh one where he's rolling the uh barrels they caught they you know colored it uh skin color so that's why in mine too yeah Okay. But uh, but we know he says it's the big man. On page 18, where we have the spider signal, I notice that this is literally an inverse of what the bat signal is in this particular case. Usually the bat signal is the police need some help, so they put up the bat signal to call Batman. Here, Spider-Man needs help from the police, so he puts up the spider signal to summon the police. Which yeah. <laughs> I find an interesting inversion of uh, of that trope. And uh, yeah, so I think that's all my thoughts on this thing. Um, Good art. Uh, I don't mind the whole reveal of Foswell in the end. And I kind of like the fact that, you know, Foswell ends up coming back later as a character and has uh, some really interesting uh, stuff come up in relation to his appearance here later. Uh, Yes, Foswell. Some of this. Foswell goes on a really interesting arc, and he, you know, we've talked about whether or not people can ever be rehabilitated in the Marvel Universe, and he sort of becomes the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, he will go on an interesting arc in terms of uh, his attempts to rehabilitate himself. And he becomes a very good character. He'll get his distinctive mustache later, but he goes through many different twists and turns in his story until finally his story ends around issue 55 or so, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I feel like the character in the Edwards, I just don't feel like there's any like real hint in this issue of like, oh, of course it makes sense that it would be Foswell. Like when he's arrested, I didn't go like, oh, of course, 
you know, now I see how they were setting up Fosbo to be the big man the whole time. I didn't have any sense of that. I think, you know, it was disappointing. I think think that was the whole point. I mean, I think that was the whole point of the thing. But it was disappointing that Spider-Man didn't figure it out himself. It was also disappointing that not only does Spider-Man not have a chance to figure it out and and confront Fosbo, Spider-Man never even gets a chance to confront J.J. Jameson. This whole thing, you know, the police just figured all that on themselves and they, Spider-Man just happens to be, you know, spying on the whole thing when the police burst in and arrest Foswell, which Spider-Man has nothing to do with and doesn't even get to be there other than off screen for the confrontation. Okay. So um, uh, we're doing Fantastic Four number 24, The Infant Terrible. Now I meant to look this up and I didn't, but isn't there some kind of French new wave movie called like L'Enfant Terrible or something like that? Or am I making that up? Well, they mentioned that French phrase in this issue. They go like, oh, the French have a phrase, l'enfant terrible, but uh, for uh, out-of-control children. But uh, yeah, I want to say there was some French movie with that phrase, with that title, probably. I don't know. Um, Well, one way or the other. Uh, It's called The Infant Terrible. And I didn't really have good memories of this issue uh, originally when I first started rereading it. Uh, It seems like a throwback to the some of the earlier issues of the Fantastic Four, like the one yeah. with Kurgo and thing and, you know, Impossible Man and stuff like that. And it just sort of seemed like, ah, they're going back to that well. And it seems like they're gonna be leaving that well behind uh over time. But, you know, this uh this story does have a lot of fun stuff in it. Okay. It does. So to- I enjoy this issue. I yeah, not the art. I think this is the ugliest issue yet of the Fantastic Four. Yes, I I hear you. But uh I like the writing and penciling. Uh, well, you know, on page uh, two, uh, panel two, um, is it just me or does Sue look kind of like she's drawn by either Bruce Tim or Darwin Cook? <laughs> yeah, she does. That's not a bad. <laughs> that's not a bad penciling and inking on that picture of Sue. But look at you know, I just look at page four, the upper right hand panel of page four, panel two of page four. Wow. Yeah. Look, look at the four of them. Tell me yeah, that was uh, not done by a ten year old. That looks like, not only does it look like it was inked by a 10-year-old, it looks like it was penciled by a 10-year-old. When you get, so again, we have written by Stanley, drawn by Jack Kirby, inking by George Bell, a.k.a. George Russo's, and it seemed like he was getting better before. He is the worst he's ever been here. And that particular panel, I will actually put it on the blog, the upper right-hand corner of page four, I think is the most amateurish piece of art that has ever appeared in the Marvel Universe. If you were to tell me, like, this is one of the greatest pencilers of all time who penciled this panel, I would say you are insane. There is no way that the penciler who penciled this panel has any talent whatsoever. I will never believe it. Yes, uh, you're right. That is a very bad panel. Um, Generally, though, uh, clearly, you know, you and I have uh, Air's inking bothers me more and Bell's inking bothers you more. And uh, we're we're just going to have to live with that. Well, that was the other thing. I was going back and listening to our old episodes, and you were pretty pro Ayers for a while, and then Ayers gradually were at his welcome yeah. with you. <laughs> and you were, you, you at first were, yeah. were a fan of Ayers, going back and listening to these old episodes, and then he wore out his welcome with you. And But to the Ayers wearing you down to the degree. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's that, fair to say. But, 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 but Ayers, I mean, come on, man. I mean, come on. Ayers could never do anything like the upper right-hand corner of page four. Anyway, I'll let you go ahead and jump into the issue. The Fantastic Four are doing some fun publicity-type photos and stuff. I see some nice antics between them. When suddenly they get word, all the reporters run out who are taking the photos uh, because there's some something big going on at Times Square. So the Fantastic Four is like, huh, okay, I guess we ought to check it out. 
So they jump into the Fantastic Arc, and as they're flying towards the towards Times Square, they get sucked into a giant glass bottle. So the Fantastic Four is seeing all these other weird things going on. So when they get their way out of the bottle, they see that there is basically a giant maze that has been so magically appeared in the middle of Times Square. We see a giant top spinning around through the city. So we then get our first look at the Infant Terrible. Um, he's a green, green bug-eyed alien with big, round, plate-looking feet and uh, a couple of antennae and kind of bug eyes. He has these antennae that can go ahead and shoot out at things and just make things happen. So, you know, kind of like Molecule Man or Impossible Man. And so he turns a, a streetlight into a berry plant and starts eating the berries. He creates a faucet in the middle of a wall and has it pour out some kind of like sundae or soda or something like that. Then the, the photographers are showing up and they're like, oh man, we got to get a picture of this guy. And all their flashlights really frighten him. And so he then starts lashing out with his power starts pulling in a meteor storm with his powers. One of the problems with this issue is that it is rather similar to the Molecule Man. It's sort of a combination of the Molecule Man and the Impossible Man in terms of, you know, someone coming from outer space who has unbeatable powers and the powers are somewhat similar to the Molecule Man. But, oh my God, we're sort of taking it to a new level here. It's like, Sue is annoying me. How can I deal with Sue? I will pull in a meteor swarm from outer space to hurl at her. And I'm like, going, okay, you have successfully created a new level of threat that we have never had in the past. <laughs> so, uh, so they're trying to figure out what's going on because all this stuff is just, you know, a next level of nuts, as you're pointing out. Reed at one point says, says you know, when Sue is speculating about what could be going on, he says, I don't know, Sue, dear. His actions were as irrational as an infant's. Then he says, an infant, of course. That's the answer. It has to be. His creating giant soldiers, his desire for sweet berries, ice cream sodas, his seemingly meaningless acts, they're all part of the behavior pattern of an infant. Now, granted, I would really say more of a toddler, but <laughs> still. Um, but then meanwhile, right. there's a mob boss of some sort who sees what's going on here and calls some of his henchmen to go out and try to lure this creature into doing their work for them. So they show up with a bunch of candy and ice cream and stuff like that to go ahead and get his attention. They're able to you know, give him candy and get him to get in the car. <laughs> so it's just literally the old strangers yeah. with candy trope here. Um, so they get him in the car and they drive off. At one point when I was with my daughter on the subway back when we lived in New York City, she suddenly had a lollipop in her hand, which was like the classic lollipop you would picture. And I'm like, oh, where'd that come from? She's like, oh, a stranger gave it to me on the subway. And I was like, oh, Jesus. All right. So what? <laughs> I haven't given her the strangers with candy talk yet. <laughs> and then I said, I'm going to let YouTube do it for me. So I came home and I searched for strangers with candy video on YouTube. And I got the most awesome video made by the police department in some small Virginia town, this animated thing that was right around from this time. It was the Caution Twins who get approached by seven different creeps over the course of the day and have to learn how to say no to each of them. And we were talking about like, uh, Mrs. Cautious, what sort of neighborhood did you move your kids into? There's a reason that house was suspiciously cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, they moved into a Predatorville. <laughs> they certainly did. <laughs> 
So yeah, the mobsters literally use the strangers with a candy bit on this little kid. Um, and then we've got a few a page of really nice speculation of exactly what this kid's going to do, uh, this alien kid, um, if he's not reined in in some way, or he or she, we don't really know. Um, and it finally comes down to, ooh, you know, if he notices how big and shiny the sun is, he could start pulling the sun towards us. And then that would be the end of all of humanity and the whole planet. So they're like, okay, we got to go take care of him. We got to, you know, we can't wait. And Reed is just sitting there on the couch. Says, you three search for him. I've got more thinking to do. <laughs> and, uh, Ben starts trying to pull him. And of course, you know, that just stretches his arm out. And uh, so the three of them take off, even though they don't really understand what's going on. They seem pretty resentful of Reed for not coming and joining them. Cut back to the havoc that the creature is wrecking. Uh, there is an armored truck that, uh, you know, armored money truck that is being just lifted up into the air. And we find out that there's some place outside of the city where the mobsters have the infant alien and have convinced him through just like pictures and hand movements and stuff like that to go and get this uh, truck full of money to bring it to them. So it comes and it, he cracks it open and then they're just like swimming in money. But of course, money is boring to this kid. So the bags of money start turning into like a pig. They start throwing wings and flying away. One turns into mud. And you just see this like this expression on the alien's face of just childlike laughter and joy from having done all of this. So these mobsters are uh, pretty much just ready to kill the kid. Uh, but then the Fantastic Four, well, the Fantastic Three, I should say, because Reed's not with them, arrive. So uh, we get to see Sue using her powers in more powerful ways these days. On the top of page 16, oh, yeah. she uses her invisible force field to keep a car from driving away. She just basically holds it in an invisible force field sack <laughs> so it can't go anywhere. Yeah. Thing puts one of the mobsters in a bunch of tires uh, set around him, which then Johnny melts together. So it's this big uh, rubber prison. So Thing, Sue, and Johnny are all kind of trying to approach the alien baby in a way that's, you know, <laughs> this is the kind of thing where, you know, if you've had a kid, you know, there might be one of those moments where the kid just gets into a really dangerous situation and you realize that if you frighten the kid, it's going to go very, very badly. But you are scared to yeah. death and you're trying to be like, oh, ha, ha, hey, come here, you know, just <laughs> I think there was some story when I was in when I was a toddler of me, you know, when, I, when we, when my parents lived, our parents, when our parents lived at the apartments they used to live in, that I had somehow uh, started climbing on the steps up to the second floor apartments. And uh, I had gotten uh. between the railings of the banister. And I was on the outside of that, holding on to it, walking up or down the steps. <laughs> you know, I was like two yeah. or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember mom or dad telling me that story. And just <laughs> it was that moment for them, like, mm, must, <laughs> must not panic, must not get kid to panic. Anyway, so they're trying to approach him in with that sort of thing in mind. You know, just how do we go ahead and get to him uh, without frightening him? But while we realize it's very urgent and they start frightening him, the alien a little bit, who ends up assembling a big rock person who then starts attacking them. We flash back to Reed, who apparently has thought through his thoughts and uh, has now done some super science and is going to go ahead and beam a radio signal out into space. 
for uh, some reason. We don't know yet. Uh, and then, but then <laughs> we get start coming in, and it's it's the it's the War of the Worlds ship. Yes, we get our very first Kirby photo collage. For some reason, rather than draw, he's really good at coming up with wild alien ships and drawing them. He cuts and pastes a drawing of the ship from the World of the Worlds movie from 1953. And he, but all of this picture of outer space here, I think is photo collage, which will become huh. a big part of the Kirby comics going forward. And I think that, and when the ship actually shows up a little later, he's actually drawing it. But at first we have a little clip from a movie that he is putting in here along with some, uh, a photo of outer space. I had, I mean, I, I knew that that was clearly the War of the Worlds from, you know, the 1950s version of the War of the Worlds movie invading ships, but it had not occurred to me that that might be some photo collage there. I just thought he had just essentially swiped the design. But uh, come to think of it, that does look like it's probably the same photo in both of those panels. I mean, obviously he's had to go in there and do some modifications to it to make sure that you could see like the little, you know, thing that the little antenna thing that comes up the top but um you might be right that might be a photo collage so a ship is coming in response to whatever it is reed just did so the rest of the fantastic four are still out there fighting this big rock creature that was created by the infant alien the kid then takes off in like a little whirlwind um so anyway the uh war of the world ship shows up just in time because the infant alien finally notices this Apparently, it's been a little overcast, and they say that, you know, the, the clouds move away, and suddenly the infant sees this bright, shiny thing off in the distance and is just about to start doing stuff to it when the parents show up. So this is what Reed was doing. Reed was uh, sending a signal out into space, basically saying, hey, are there any parents who's missing a child? Come get your child at aisle three, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And uh, so they show up and they grab the kid. And then so as soon as they grab him, all of the stuff he's done essentially is undone. And this is a thing they often do in these stories where they're just like, oh, yeah, it's just very pat. You know, it's uh, just going to, you know, oh, and, and everything's OK now. Uh, but then I, I what I'm thinking about is back on page 20 where he had disintegrated that helicopter and, you know, the two people in the helicopter, you know, take, you know, take their parachutes and jump out. So if everything that the infant terrible did is now undone, does that helicopter then get recreated in the sky without those pilots? <laughs> mid well, this, be, this is the whole end game problem. This is, you know, it's like, I'm going to restore everybody to being alive after having died five years ago. And it's like, what about all the people who were in planes? Right. And the whole thing just doesn't make any sense. And so then the poor writers of Endgame, who have no one to blame but themselves, had to keep explaining over and over again in interviews. Like, no, the Hulk, when he used the Infinity Gauntlet, he was omnipotent at the time. So he could just, I guess, go through one by one and in an instant fix every single problem in the entire universe of what about the people who used to be in planes and now would be reappearing in midair. And he, <laughs> he was able to, because he was omnipotent, he was able to fix every one of those problems one by one for the entire universe or something like that. They had to claim in interviews. But yes, it is... Trying to instantly undo something is a problem. And then they basically are able to see off the parents of this infant and you know, actually shake the child's hand and, you know, see, you know, no harm, no foul, basically. And they take the take the baby off. So, um, yes. like I said, it, I liked the story better than I remembered liking it. 
basically, yeah. there's just so much zany visual mayhem in this one that is tons of fun. Um, and you know, yeah. it's 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 the little thing about like, oh yeah, this dangerous alien, but in the end, it does is not malevolent at all. It's just, I mean, well, I guess kind of like the Impossible Man, who's like, you know, kind of like an eight year old. <laughs> you know, this is just a little bit younger. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So, that, that, so yeah, it is a little bit derivative of the Impossible Man story. It's a little bit derivative of the Molecule Man story. But I think this is a lot of fun. I think that Kirby just likes to go crazy. Kirby just likes to create situations in which anything can happen. That's when Kirby is at his best. And having omnipotent characters means you have a situation where anything can happen. And he is having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, no, that 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 is the best recipe for good Kirby stuff is a a situation where given the setup that we have anything can happen because then he will make anything happen okay so it is your turn and i guess going on to journey into mystery journey into mystery number 102 so we should you know this is a kirby book but we should still be limiting ourselves five minutes here but uh so then we have but we have very good news we have a new inker last issue was inked by george bell this issue has a new anchor. We have Chick Stone, the first appearance of Chick Stone, who will be a nice middle-of-the-road Kirby anchor, much better than George Bell, much better than Mitzcoletta. I would say about as good as Dick Ayers, nowhere near as good as Joe Sinnott. And so he makes his first appearance here. As you recall, we were in the middle of a storyline last issue where Thor was convinced to go into the future as the slave of Zarko the Tomorrow Man in order to keep Zarko the Tomorrow Man from destroying our present. We got a quick review of that. Kirby, of course, gets to draw a wonderful future uh, in which everybody goes around on moving sidewalks. <laughs> there is a wonderful robot police air traffic division robot that is in charge of air traffic control. Sarko and Thor show up. Sarko has Thor fight the police, quickly sort of takes over the world. He goes to the World Council. He demands to know where the master machine is hidden, the one supreme machine which gives you your orders. Once I put that machine under my command, the world is mine. They then have a gigantic robot octopus attack Thor. Of course, Kirby draws the hell out of it. Oh, that is beautiful. That is absolutely gorgeous. And the inks are great. It is, I think Chick Stone is doing a wonderful job inking this. It's so much better than it would have looked under Bell. I I definitely Mm -hmm. like Chick Stone's inks. Uh, You know, he's, uh, I I like him better than Ayers. Uh, He's not quite um, Paul Ryman, but um, he's, he's quite good. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, definitely not as good as Reinman. But so then they, Zarko eventually finds out where the Master Machine is. He gets, he brings Thor there. So then, but Thor uh, is a stickler for the rules. And Thor points out that, yes, I promised I would be your slave until you took control of the Master Machine. And now that you have taken control of the Master Machine, I'm no longer your slave and I will defeat you, which he does rather handily. They have a nice little fight. There's one of the, Early examples of a panel that Kirby actually absolutely loves on page 11 of looking from underneath as Thor is hurling the hammer over our heads. Mm -hmm. And I always love that angle. But so he deals with the Tomorrow Man rather handily, freezes him in a block of ice. The local police come and arrest him again. He says, every victory over the forces of evil is an important one, my friend. But now I must return to my own century. And at this point, in the first 
appearance of Zarkothra, and it was shown as rather difficult to travel in time. Thor had to sort of appeal to Odin and get special dispensation to do it. He's doing it much more easily now. Yeah, well, and, he, had to, um, he had to have a piece of metal that the, from the Tomorrow Man's time, and then when he spun his hammer, that would sort of act as a homing beacon to the time that he wanted to go to. Whereas here, yeah, it seems to be a lot simpler. By the way, uh, while I have you interrupted, I just want to point out that the panel on the bottom center of page 12 uh, this is something that we see, uh, uh, you know, from time to time in these early Thor issues. Uh, Thor is saying, while you were talking, I have been gently rubbing my hammerhead along the ground, picking up vast amounts of natural energy, energy which I have directed toward the master machine that is now able to, again, defend itself. But just the whole thing about, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to do something where I, like, create a bunch of static electricity with Mjolnir, and then that does something. Uh, we, this is not the only time we see that, but <laughs> it's always gloriously silly whenever that comes up. Well, the whole thing feels oddly sexual and yes. disturbing. Oh, yeah. So um, this, is, this, is not, then, this is not the hammer. So, meanwhile, we've got a, we've got a shockingly non-spectacular helmet on odin who just appears off model in the background of a panel in which he is oh yeah you know, or is that even i guess that's not odin is that i guess that is odin he's saying did you did you yeah my you favorite song. yeah no it's odin yeah you're yeah, right okay. that is, did you that see is Loki, a my really lackluster helmet from kirby yeah really off model odin yeah. he just doesn't look like odin at all did you see loki my favorite son did not fail me he only seemed to be in league with the mortal until he carried out his oath and oh Loki thinks, bah, everything went wrong with my plan. Thor is back in favor with Odin again, but time is endless, and I too am an immortal. Sooner or later, I shall defeat the accursed Thor, but when I do, it will be forever. So that was the end of this issue. I think this was a fun issue. I think it had really nice chick zone inking. It was night and day better than the first half of the story. And Kirby loves drawing futuristic cities, and he loves drawing robots, and he loves you know, really letting his imagination fly. And I think it's a, it's a really nice issue. I think it's really beautiful. And, you know, and I like Thor outsmarting the villain with a sort of, you know, uh, rules lawyering him, as they would say in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and I thought it was fun. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm no fan of the Tomorrow Man as a, uh, as a villain, but I do like all of the futuristic city stuff, certainly. And this is, yeah, it's all right, in my opinion. But um, then we're going to go on and get some Tales of Asgard, which is a lot better. Tales of Asgard, always a million times better. At this point, we are following the Wife of Thor up to page 18, and we have something even better than Chickstone. We've got Paul Reinman on Inks. Indeed. And it is absolutely gorgeous. Looks very much like Steve Rude, as we've always said. It looks gorgeous, and this is a great story that is hugely important for Thor. At this point in the boyhood of Thor, it says we've gotten to the age of 18, and we get an issue they've been building up for up to for many issues. So the last several issues, it's been tales of heroic things Thor has done, and then he tries to lift a hammer and he can't lift the hammer. So there's been this issue. Well, this issue, not only do we get him lifting the hammer, but we meet the three fates, who I guess, is that the same as the Norns? I think is so. Fates and Norns, the same thing? I believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. He is trying to lift the hammer, and then suddenly we get a major character come in. We get Baldur. This is the first time we've seen Baldur, I think, isn't it? No, I think we've seen him as a background character. I think we heard him name-checked at least once when we had one of those things where it's like, oh, look, here, Loki was just returned back to Asgard, and, you know, here are some people standing in the background. I think that he was name-checked at one point in one of those. But this is the first time we've gotten him actually doing or saying anything of note. Yes. 
So then Balder comes in and says, Thor, the storm giants ambushed me, seized my sister Sif. And then Thor doesn't even remember what he was doing. He doesn't remember he was trying to lift the hammer. He doesn't remember he has the hammer in his hand. He just knows he has to rescue Sif. And he goes charging off with the hammer in his hand. And now he's able to lift the hammer and doesn't even realize. It says, but so intent upon his mission is that he doesn't even realize what he is doing. So then he thunders out of town on his horse, is confronting, what are these? Some kind of giants. I don't remember what, uh, what, Stop! What you know? Subset of giants these are in this particular case. Yes, confronting some sort of giants um, is going past them. So then we get two other major characters introduced. He gets to. He is in hell. He meets Hela, who of course was so memorably portrayed by Kate Blanchett in the movie Thor Ragnarok. She is not yet green. She will later be green in the comics, and she was green in Thor Ragnarok. She is purple here, but she is wearing already the spectacular headdress that she wears in both the comics and in Ragnarok, and he is rescuing Sif. So here is Sif. Now you might go like, well, Hela's not quite on model yet, and neither is Sif, because she's Bond. Well, this is actually not a mistake that she's Bond, because it is part of Norse mythology that Sif was originally Bond, and then her hair became black at one point because of some story. I don't remember what the story is. But so then we get Sif here as a Bond before that story happens, and Thor says to Hela, do with me what you will, but free the innocent Sif. And she says, you would sacrifice yourself for another. Never have I heard such an offer. I cannot do it. I cannot take a life which is so young, so brave, no, no, so noble. Go, Thor, son of Odin, and take Sif with you. You have earned your freedom. And it says, the irony of the tale is not until days later did the mighty god realize he had won his goal. So he goes home and it still has not even occurred to him that he's had the hammer in his hand this whole time. I think this is a fantastic story. I think this may be the best Tales of Asgard story yet. It is wonderful to have the culmination, sort of the first time really in Marvel Comics, where we have the culmination of a multi-issue storyline, a storyline gradually developing over the course of several issues of him trying to lift the hammer, trying to lift the hammer. And then, as they point out, it is indeed ironic the way he learns to lift the hammer. And it, it's a wonderful sort of ironic culmination of that long-running storyline. It's wonderful to see Hela and Hel for the first time. It's wonderful to, wonderful to see Sif and Balder for the first time. Fantastic Ryan Man and King. I love this story. I will. Uh, I think you summed it up pretty well. We will move on. <laughs> I agree. Right. I agree. Wonderful. So uh, let's go ahead and what are we? Strange Tales. Uh, right. So we're going to have the Human Torch fighting the Wizard, guest starring the Fantastic Four. And we've got a picture of Doctor Strange on the cover. Is this the first time that Doctor Strange has visually appeared on the cover? It is. They are finally not ashamed of, of Doctor Strange, who is sort of the title character of this book. We are actually getting to see a picture of Doctor Strange on the cover of Strange Tales for the first time. Human Torch yes. is definitely a non-Kirby uh, yes. Dicko book. So let's, can you set a five minute clock? Could you set a timer? All right. I've set the clock. 457, 456. <laughs> okay. So we start out with Johnny just showing off to some of the local kids. Uh, and then we see the wizard is still in jail, presumably here in Glenville, which is a little bit odd. And the more that I think about it, getting access to all sorts of technology in prison, he is able to knock out a guard. And then once again, mask technology being so superior in this world, he's able to disguise himself perfectly as that same guard and then use a, an early version of his anti-gravity discs. Uh, in a backpack form to uh, escape from the prison yard. Then is 
picturing all the ways he's going to use his anti-gravity device. This is sort of like something that Kirby hasn't done in a while, is having the villain go like, I could do this or I could do that. That was sort of early days of Marvel Comics that you would see a lot of. But I absolutely love the drawing on page three showing uh, what it would be like if he is wearing his anti-gravity device and he's sticking up somebody outside of a window of a skyscraper. And we've got this wonderful angle looking down on the cars below as he is by this window. And I think it's just a gorgeous panel by Ayers. Yeah, I agree. Oh, and by the way, just to be, um, yeah, just be specific. This is a story, Stanley, Art Dick Ayers, lettering S. Rosen. So then uh, Johnny gets a letter that says, hey, come down to this TV studio and you're going to give a closed circuit TV exhibition for charity. And he's like, oh, all right, that's uh, that's fantastic. Let me go do it. And so he gets down there and they're given these orders to go ahead and do more and more and more and more and more flame stuff until he runs out of flame. And at that point, they then knock him out with some kind of uh, something or other. And then because this is actually the wizard who did this whole thing and lured him down here. Uh, so the, liz- the wizard, the lizard, the wizard once again uh, is impersonating Johnny. And we have seen him do this in the past with a sort of a fire suit that he's got. But at this point, in addition to impersonating him in flaming form, he's impersonating him when flamed off. So he goes back to the home that he shares with Sue and he is being all sinister with her and uh, knocks her out. Sue and Johnny wake up in whatever kind of little box that they've been put into as their prison. Oh, that's right, because they were put into a uh, an advertising display on Times Square that looks like a big box of matches or something like that. So he is able to get a little bit of flame through a small hole somewhere in there where he's then able to get a four symbol to come out so that he can be rescued. Thing and Reed see the uh, see the four, and they come and break the two out. They rescue Sue and Johnny. The wizard hears on the news that they have escaped. Johnny comes in to get his revenge on the wizard. Torch and the wizard have a fight, and the wizard is able to use his anti-gravity disc to supposedly get away from Johnny. Uh, the torch follows him up into space. He isn't able to go up any higher because there isn't enough oxygen, but it turns out that the wizard hasn't figured out or has some kind of thing go wrong with his anti-grav disc, keeps on going up and can't stop, and it seems like he's going to be lost up there forever. And Hey! Yay! Timing! Um, so there we go. Uh, there's not really much to discuss in this, I don't think. That's just pretty much what happened, and yeah, art's okay, uh, you know is fun yeah it's good to see it's good to see the wizard get another key part of his uh thing the anti-gravity disc will be a big part of his persona from this point on and they'll get a lot of good story out of it that sort of becomes his thing it's interesting he's still not wearing a costume he's still not wearing any spandex which he will eventually start to wear and eventually the anti-gravity disc will become like part of his chest device on his spandex costume once he finally starts wearing it but you know, they are certainly not shy about giving every other villain a spandex costume. It's interesting they haven't got to that with him yet. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I guess the five minutes was supposed to entail the Doctor Strange story as well. So maybe I didn't, uh, I didn't. Oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, okay. okay. No, 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 no. That's that's a Dicko story. Right. We don't, we. We don't give him but, short uh, shrift. Okay. So. Uh, we don't give him short shrift. So the, uh, the Doctor Strange ep- uh, story, it's called Doctor Strange, The Possessed. And largely, this feels like an old, uh, you know, sort of Twilight Zone alien invasion comic from like the pre-superhero days that Ditko would be working on with that. It does. It feels like something out of Amazing Adult Fantasy. Right, exactly. And uh, so that's a little bit 
weird. I mean, it's a change of pace. And uh, but one thing we do get in here is just some absolutely fantastic artwork that is just you know makes whatever you know even if I don't even if I don't think the story is uh, quite up to some of the standards we might hope for the art in this more than makes up for that it's just really gorgeous i mean right from the very beginning the little the little domed thing that holds the levitating map uh globe of the world uh just the texture on that thing is you know yes. luscious <laughs> it's fantastic so um, yeah. so there essentially uh, Doctor Strange on this little globe is able to see that there is this uh, little area in, I believe, Europe that has a dark patch on it, which means that there is some sort of evil magic that's being used there. We see a uh, scene from this little town somewhere in the Bavarian Alps, it says. So Herr Braun, who is talking to Frau Lieber, which I think is probably not a mistake at <laughs> 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 both Stan and Larry. Uh, the real last name is Lieber, but uh, we see that he is walking through a particular part of town and some kind of weird glow things hap thing happens to him. And then he isn't acting normal anymore. And uh, more and more people end up having this weird thing happen to them. And the people who haven't been possessed yet by this thing are getting very scared of the things, the people who are now possessed. So Doctor Strange shows up in this area to try to figure out what's going on. I love, uh, on page three, panel two, I love both the character of the old man. Uh, he just looks fantastic. Actually looks a little bit like uh, that face that Leonardo da Vinci would like to uh, doodle a whole lot in a lot of his notes. Yeah. Looks very much like that guy. And, uh, and the leaf shadow pattern on Doctor Strange is just wonderful. Um, actually, what, yes. <laughs> come, to the, come to think of it, uh, uh, it makes me think of a particular panel in the first issue that I, well, in the first issue of the second series of Hard Time, which is one of the things that I inked with uh, Steve Gerber writing and uh, Brian Hurt penciling. Uh, but there was a, you know, sun-dappled scene under a tree uh, in that issue, and um, I very much was trying to get something that looks just like this when I was inking it. Uh, so I, I'm really, cool. really knocked out by that. So anyway, uh, Doctor Strange is going along and using some kind of uh, eye hypnotizing thing to see what's going on. Sees things; these things are possessed by something or other. He doesn't know what yet. So then that something or other goes by and gets to its little camouflage safety area. And goes back and we find out that these are basically some aliens that are, you know, coming here and trying to take over some humans. But then uh, they're war he's warning the rest of his uh, his alien compatriots that there's a problem now. That, yes, this Doctor Strange guy is looking into this and he seems to be uh, a problem. The big problem with this issue, which isn't a real problem, but it's it's really only a problem for me on page four, panel five, is that... You know, I have no problem if these are people from another dimension who are coming to our dimension to slowly sort of take over our dimension. That's a problem for Doctor Strange. But just the drawing of inside their ship on page four looks too looks too sci-fi to me. Yeah. And this story generally feels too sci-fi. It feels too much like, again, Ditko is in sort of amazing adult fantasy mode. And these are, he's sort of fallen into the bug-eyed aliens with a science fiction metal ship Uh Thing. And I feel like that's too far off of what Doctor Strange should be. So if I could just re if I could just white out page panel four a little bit and <laughs> remove the stuff that looks like metal sci-fi stuff from their ship, then I would have no problem with this story at all. 
uh, I, I would support that 100 um, percent. But then uh, getting back to the the great art that we do have, again, the final panel on page four is just absolutely gorgeous with the candle in the foreground, the heavy shadow, uh, you know, Dr. Strange sitting in sort of, in sort of his Rodan thinker pose uh, with his cloak. Uh, draping over him. You know, one thing I've heard some artists say is that uh, one of Ditko's strongest points as an artist is that he was a master of drapery. Basically, the yes. way that fabric yes, drape on a per the way that fabric, you know, that clothing drapes on a person or that fabric drapes in various other ways, that that's just, he just was, you know, had that down. And you can see that very much in this panel. Um, so yeah. one of the aliens comes and tries to possess Dr. Strange, but Dr. Strange's astral self is already outside of his body, and apparently the aliens can't possess him because he has, his essence is not in his body right now, and apparently that means that whatever they do can't work. So then, uh, Dr. Strange's astral self comes and captures this, uh, alien and is able to figure out what it is doing and why it is doing it. Okay, so then the the aliens decide, okay, this is a problem, so we're going to go ahead and whip the population up and say Dr. Strange is the one who has been causing all of these possessions, so we need to go and get Dr. Strange. So they come after him. He flees off into the woods. Again, another, another fantastic panel at the beginning of page 7 of him fleeing off into the woods that's just uh, so much ink is used in that uh, particular panel. And then well, Dr. We just Strange... Keep being, we just keep... Just we just keep being agog by various panels here, but I think you skipped over another amazing panel, the middle panel of the bottom of page six, where talk about folds of clothing where uh, strange, yeah. strange, strange still doesn't have his floating cloak yet. He doesn't have his uh, what's it called? What's his flying cloak? Cloak called? of levitation. Cloak, cloak of levitation. He doesn't have his cloak of levitation yet. He's still wearing a dark blue cloak, but the way it is whipping around him on the bottom of page six is just gorgeous. So then Doctor Strange is able to find that uh, the invisible um, portal thing that they've got to be able to come back and forth from their world to our world. And he is able to go into their world across this boundary. Then he has some sort of a, uh, a psychic battle with him using his amulet. And then the alien is using some other sort of beam to go into his head. Doctor Strange, of course, ends up winning this psychic battle. And at that point, all of the possessing demons or aliens or whatever they are leave the bodies of the villagers. And then we end up with once more just a fantastic knockout panel as the final panel of the issue with uh, Doctor Strange uh, on a hill above the small town with a moon in the background and just a flowing cape and uh, just so much atmosphere. It's just absolutely wonderful. And I mean, for that matter, the, the uh, panel right before that is great with just the use of blacks and shadows uh, and the texture on the tree branch. I just can't say enough good stuff about uh, a lot of the art in this issue, as long as the art that isn't dealing with the weird alien things like those are just sort of like, yeah, eh, that's sort of rote Ditko, you know, just sort of like, oh, I got to do some aliens. Sure. Why not? But uh, all the shots pretty much of Doctor Strange are just utterly fantastic. Dicko is just at the top of his powers. He is in both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, which we've talked before are such radically different books, but they yes. are both, he is just knocking it out of the park on both books, using his tremendous skills in different ways on the two books. And this issue is one of the most gorgeous Doctor Strange's ever. It is the sheer amount of atmosphere. We just keep geeking out over these panels. 
if you do if you are listening to this podcast and you do not have a Marvel Unlimited subscription or access to these comics in any other way, go ahead and get one. Get one just to look at this issue. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, before we move on, let's go ahead and take a break here. Let's go ahead and break this episode up into two. So this will be the end of the first half of March 1964. Uh, let's go ahead and say goodbye for now. All right. Well, goodbye, everybody. And uh, we will we will talk to you in in probably a week, but we will talk to each other in another 10 seconds because we're just going to go ahead and record the second half of this, <laughs> the second half of this month uh, right now. Okay, bye, everybody. Bye. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.